the angel Gabriel boldly says to Mary, do not be afraid. But why? Why would she not be afraid in this most stirring of experiences? Well, because she had found favor with God. He would be her ark in the midst of a storm, her cloud in the midst of a wilderness. Because she would give birth to a child, a child like Samson, and she would call him Yeshua, transliterated Jesus, but translated Joshua, one who would lead his people into the full embrace of the promise that God had granted them. And now today we look at another reason from the angel Gabriel. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. A few verses later, he says he will be the Son of God. Now, how does this reality bring hope and joy to someone like Mary in her first century world and context? That this child who was going to uproot and alter dramatically her entire existence, the, the announcement of which stirred her up with fear and anxiety and emotions uh, unlike she had ever experienced. How would this statement, that he would be the son of the Most High or the Son of God, bring her hope and joy? How, how does it bring us hope and joy? Well, to be able to figure that out, we have to answer a very basic question at the start. That is, what does it mean, this phrase, Son of God? Now, to those of us who've been in the church for any number of years, we are quick to say, well, that just means that he's God. And there's truth in that. But to really get to the full understanding of what's happening here, we have to see it in the context of the first century world of Mary and how she would have received that. Because chances are she wasn't expecting God to take on flesh. So what does it mean uh, to be the son of God? Well, once again, just like throughout all of these messages of Gabriel to Mary, the phrase son of God has all kinds of significant echoes from the Old Testament, specifically in three instances that are of particular note for us in understanding this. The first would be Adam, that he was the son of God, the, the first created of humanity, made in the image of God. Uh, we know that at least the author of this gospel, Luke, has this in mind because when he gets to the genealogy of Jesus, just two chapters later, he is careful to note, uh, all the way making its way to Adam, that Adam was the son of of God. So Adam, uh, there's at least echoes of this uh, for Luke as the author of this uh, gospel, but certainly for Mary as well. So Adam, but then also the idea of Israel. Israel was known as the firstborn son of God. You're saying, well, Israel's not a person. Yeah, uh, figuratively, Israel as a people was known as the firstborn son of God, the full heir of all the, the inheritance and blessing and promises of 
God. God said of Israel, you are my firstborn son. And we see that in uh, the Pentateuch, in places like Deuteronomy. And we see it all the way through the Old Testament to the ends to the prophets, or even the prophet Hosea is speaking uh, of this realities. Uh, so Israel is the son of God. And then also David. And we'll save most of this Davidic talk for next week uh, because that's where Gabriel goes next. But it's important to pause and note that the Son of God had the connotation of David. We see that in the Psalms, uh, and we see it uh, even of the offspring of, of David, therefore Solomon in particular in Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, they were the Son of God. So, uh, in taking these Old Testament echoes, what do we get a sense that it means to be called the Son of God? Because Adam wasn't divine, uh, Israel <laughs> wasn't divine, and David wasn't divine. So, what is going on here? So, I think there's a couple of things that's important to note. The first is that this is a chosen instrument of God. This to be the Son of God means to be a, a chosen instrument of God, chosen by God. Adam, chosen by God. Israel, chosen by God. David, chosen by God. But chosen for what purpose? So they're chosen in order to reveal God to the onlooking world. Right? So we see that in all of the vocations of these people. Uh, to reveal the glory of God simply by their existence, that they are, proves the glory, the majesty, uh, the power, the creative nature of creator God. But then also in how they conduct their lives, how they order their lives, uh, what their lives look like speaks to the character of God. That is, that in this chosen instrument of God, uh, through creation, through gathering, through conscription, we see what God is like, how they order their lives, how they respond to circumstances and situations, what they prioritize. All of these speak to the character of God or are intended to speak to the character of God. So the Son of God has this idea to be a chosen, chosen to reveal the glory of God to an onlooking world. Israel was to be this holy representation of God that the world would be drawn to. Adam was to be uh, the firstborn of humanity who would speak the glory of God into uh, the created world. And then David to lead Israel towards its true vocation. Adam ruling the world, Israel living according to God's way, God's law, God's Torah, and David leading Israel therein. To be the Son of God means to be chosen by God in order to reveal the majesty and the glory and the character of God. But it also speaks to a connection to divinity, right? Uh, this idea that the Son of God was proximate, close, near, connected to God, could hear His voice and respond to it. So Adam walks with God in the cool of the day in the garden. They cohabitate. There's a closeness. They speak to each other. There's proximity. There's no 
barrier. God dwells with Israel and he leads them uh, through his temple and, and the structure of the nation that God sets up. There's proximate nature to God, to his voice and responding to it. And therefore access to God and to his direction. The Son of God therefore becomes a representative of God to the world. So this idea of chosen chosen instrument, created, um, uh, selected, um, gathered in order to reveal God's glory, majesty, character as a representative of God in close proximity to him, uh, speaks to him, hears his voice, uh, is like him. From this, in the first century world, first century Jewish world of Mary, uh, comes a great messianic hope. So maybe you're familiar with this, this uh, title, Messiah. Uh, it's often spoken of, of Jesus, that he was Israel's Messiah, uh, a literal translation, like anointed one. But this messianic idea, this hope, arose out of this concept of Son of God. And, and uh, therefore, it, it's not by any coincidence that the idea of Messiah or the title of Messiah was closely related to the title or the idea of Son of God. We need look no further <clears throat> than Peter's confession <clears throat> excuse me, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. You remember this? Jesus is asking, who, who do people say I am? And the disciples give answers. And then Jesus says, well, who, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Those ideas deeply connected together. And this messianic hope uh, was the idea that a, a new rescuer and leader like Moses and like David would come up, that Israel would be put almost on their back and that this Messiah would, would lead to uh, a renewed freedom for God's people that would throw off their enemies, that would reestablish um, Israel as, if, as, as it was in its glory days. This messianic hope uh, comes from the echoes of the Old Testament, Adam, Israel, David. Uh, it also comes from the covenant fidelity of God. Israel deeply believed that God was a God who kept his covenant promises. And core amongst them is that they would be his people and he would be their God. And yet, in the first century world of Mary, Israel wasn't experiencing that. There was lots of prophetic testimony that it would come, prophets like uh, Jeremiah uh, and, and countless others speaking to this reality. But they were in exile. It, it was as if they had never returned from the great exile to Babylon in the Old Testament that Israel's sin had led them into. So the covenant nature of God, they have the, the prophetic um, testimony that God was going to restore his people, but they have the current experience of being uh, oppressed by the Romans and, and not having tasted that full return to God. But this Messiah, this, this Son of God, 
would come and he would lead his people back into the glory of Israel past. And his arrival would mean that God had forgiven Israel. That the slate had been wiped clean. And that he was embracing them anew. More than anything, this title to Mary represented that her child was going to be this messianic figure, a son of God, chosen by God to reveal his glory, to demonstrate his character, a representative of God who would rise up and lead his people out from under oppression, fully take hold of the ultimate forgiveness of God for their sins and restore them into their covenant promise, this place that was a place of peace and hope and blessing and provision and fullness of life, everything their heart longed for and wanted. How does this message bring hope and joy to Mary? I think... Uh, at the very least, in a couple of significant ways. The first is that God, Yahweh God, creator of and sustainer of all things, was breaking in to the struggle of his people. You've got to understand uh, that the last prophet had spoken several hundred years earlier. This was a time known as a time of silence a struggle and difficulty for the people of God. And it seemed like God was far off, almost that he was indifferent, certainly silent. Their hope persisted, but it was faint and lessening in so many ways. This messianic beat was in their hope that God would one day forgive their sins, throw off their oppressors, and once again, Welcome them. This message to Mary, this unexpected recipient, brings her incredible hope and joy because God was finally breaking in. Have you ever felt like Mary? Have you had seasons of life? Perhaps you're in the midst of one now. I mean, here we are again, back into... Uh, some more significant restrictions where we can't um, in good faith gather together and we're isolated and all joining in virtually. Maybe now is a season of frustration and a lack of patience. I know for me it is. And maybe it seems like, God, we've been praying and praying and it seems like you're you're far off or, or you're quiet or you're not answering. Maybe it even seems like you're indifferent. Set aside the pandemic for a minute. Have you had this experience in your life at any other time? Or maybe you're experiencing it in, in a non-pandemic way right now. It just seems like God isn't there. What we celebrate at Advent, what we celebrate at Christmas is not 
just a jolly gift giver. It's a God who really is breaking in to our struggle and has already begun to do so. This is our God. He has not forgotten us. He is not far off. He knows the depth of our struggle. And he is, through Jesus, breaking in. It gives me incredible hope that rises to joy, even in the midst of a global pandemic, or even in the midst of the depth of struggle that we sometimes encounter in life. That we have a God who is not confined to a far-off place, who is not a cosmic cop of sorts, simply observing indifferently, but who is, in fact, we know because of Jesus, breaking in. Will you persist in that hope and that faith? The angel Gabriel message to Mary gives her hope and joy because she serves a God who is breaking in. But even more so, this is an announcement of a God who's not just breaking in, but who is going to dwell again (laughs) with his people. That is that he is not just going to make a one-time visit and then back where he came from. Instead, He's a God who's breaking in to stay and to dwell with his people. The Christmas message of the Gospel John is really simple, right? We don't get any of the nativity stuff. We simply get the message that the word has become flesh and the word has pitched his tent. He has tabernacled. He has dwelt among us. He's not just breaking in. He's here to stay in the presence of God means access to God. It means his inheritance, his power, his victory, his peace, his love, his presence with his people, his blessings. And we live in this already not yet experience of this. We, we've tasted it in part, but not in its fullness. That's what, that's what we long for what we call the second advent, the return of Jesus again, when, when all things are finally made new once and for all. But we have tasted and we do taste these blessings of a God who dwells with us. Have you tasted it? Do you experience it? You serve a God who didn't just show up 2,000 years ago and then return to where he came from. Or who isn't just a once a year Christmas gift giver, but who pitches his tent with us in the midst of the loss of a loved one, in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of social strife and upheaval, in the midst of an incredibly divisive election cycle, in the midst of vocational unknowns, in the midst of dreams that you've longed for that haven't yet or might not come to fruition, in the midst of just the everyday mundane stuff of life, we have a God who not only created and sustained all things and sustains all things, 
but who also walks daily with us. Can you imagine the hope that rushes to Mary's heart when she ponders this concept of the Son of God bringing this reality to bear in her life? And then the hope and joy that must have flooded Mary's heart with the announcement of forgiveness. A forgiveness that, quite frankly, didn't depend on her or Israel's performance. That God, because of his covenant nature and his love for the world, came. That is that Israel didn't do good enough, or the Jewish people didn't do good enough, or humanity didn't do good enough to bring this coming back about God, because he keeps his covenant, because he loves the world, came. And his announcement, or his coming, is a grand announcement of forgiveness. A slate wiped clean. Or as the psalm writer would speak about it, though our sins were as scarlet, They have been made as white as wool or as white as snow. A grand forgiveness was being announced to Mary, to the shepherds, to Joseph, to the Magi, to Israel, and ultimately to the world. Can you imagine the hope that flooded her heart? that God was breaking in, that he was forgiving his people, and that he was going to dwell with them. I don't know if you're anything like me, but this pandemic has brought with it uh, a constant exposure to my brokenness, (laughs) my impatience, my selfishness, my desire for things to go the way I want them to, that is my Adam-like, and I don't mean Adam-me, I mean Adam-like, Adam and Eve, desire to control things and be God. The announcement of forgiveness is powerfully cleansing to my heart, even now. God is not holding it against me not holding against me a a lack of faith, not holding against me selfishness and self-worship and self-sustenance, not holding against me my outbursts against other people, my condemnation of other people, not holding against me slipping into bad habits, that God's arrival in Christmas demonstrates to us that it's not dependent on us, but it is a grand announcement of forgiveness. Hope and joy flood Mary's heart. How do we know? She embraces this call in her life. Let it be done to me as you have said. I am a bondservant of God. And then later on in Luke chapter 1, the, this great worship song she sings, the Magnificat, uh, a song filled with blessing. I am a blessed one. Joy exuding from this hope. Why? She had come to understand what this announcement meant. Gave her incredible hope 
and joy. And likewise, it should for me and you. But all the more so, because we see Jesus in far greater light than Mary could have that first Christmas season. We see Jesus not just as a child of promise or a child born into a manger, but a Jesus who walked the earth, a Jesus who who spoke with power, a Jesus who healed and who forgave sins, a Jesus who took on sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection won a grand victory over them. Don't you see, Mary knew and believed that Jesus would be the Son of God. But we know that Jesus was the ultimate, the once and for all Son of God. That is, that he was not just another chosen instrument of God. Not just another like Israel or like Adam. He was the ultimate Israel. He is the ultimate Israel. And he is the ultimate Adam. Whereas Israel was the people of God, Jesus is the person of God. Israel is shrunk down on to one person where Israel could not keep the covenant uh, that God had given them. In the wilderness was given to temptation and, and, and fell away from God. Jesus, in his temptation in the wilderness, withstands the move of the devil and lives in submission to God. Jesus was everything Israel could never be. And for that reason, all of God's blessing and promises are poured out on Jesus. But Jesus welcomes the rest of us, whether we are ethnically Jewish or not, into this experience of spiritual Israel. That is once what used to be an ethnic tribe is now the person of Jesus and everyone who is in Christ. How does God keep his covenant to Israel? In Jesus. How does he pour out the promises of those covenants, he pours them out on Jesus and we taste them through our connection to Jesus. Jesus is not just a restorer of Israel. He is the ultimate expression of what Israel was meant to be. But it's not just this group chosen by God. It's even bigger than that. Because Jesus is what humanity was always meant to be. That is that he's not just another like Adam. He's the ultimate, the better, the true Adam. We see the Apostle Paul uh, tease this out in Romans chapter 5. That Jesus reverses all the wrongs of Adam. And that ultimately through his resurrection, which unsurprisingly takes place on the first day of a week, creation language, in a garden, creation language. He brings about new creation. But not just for himself, for all of humanity that would be connected to him. 
Don't you see this? Jesus is the once and for all representative of God. That anyone who is in Jesus has full access to the blessings of God. Or as Paul says it, if anyone be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The slate is wiped clean. Incredible. Jesus, the ultimate Son of God, the ultimate Adam, the ultimate Israel, and therefore the ultimate Messiah. He was not just another in the line of sons of God. He was the once and for all Son of God. He didn't, his presence didn't just announce forgiveness for a season or forgiveness of sins past that had led into exile. His arrival announced forgiveness completely of all sin and death for anyone who would receive it in Christ. This is the very thing that the Pharisees got so agitated with Jesus for, that he was announcing this kind of forgiveness for anyone who would receive it. He was not just another in the line of rescuers of Israel or leaders of Israel. He was the once and for all rescuer and leader of the people of God, defeating not just a conquering tribe, but the ultimate enemy of sin and death. Don't you see, Mary saw in part and she was flooded with hope and joy. How much more us who see in full should our hearts be filled with hope and joy. And what's more, whereas the Son of God spoke of a connection to God, an access to the voice of God, a representative of God, we have in Jesus the ultimate fulfillment of this in an even surprising way. That is that Jesus is not just a man chosen by God. Jesus is the God-man. That God himself has taken on flesh. That is that where Son of God used to speak about a connection to God, in saying it of Jesus, it now speaks of divinity itself. And we know this is true, not just because the New Testament writers tell us, uh, Paul in Romans chapter 1 speaks of it in this profound way. Uh, The gospel writer John certainly speaks about it in this profound way. But Jesus himself speaks about it. He says quite famously uh, in speaking about uh, Israel and their connection to Abraham, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Am. That is that he gave himself the divine name of Yahweh. I am Jesus announcing his divinity through his words and his healing and his ultimately his resurrection. That is that in Jesus, our hope is not just placed in another great human leader. Our hope is placed directly in a God 
who loved Mary and who loves you and me enough to set aside the comforts of heaven and to take on human flesh, to enter willingly out of love into the struggle and the mess of this world in order that he would set us free, forgive us, and restore us, not just for a new season, but for all of eternity. And this makes him the son of the Most High God. You know, it's fascinating that is in the days of uh, the first century world of Mary, there was someone else very prominent called Son of God. Uh, and that was Caesar Augustus. Uh, he had taken on this title, believing that Caesar was divine and that as his son or his uh, inheritor, he was the son of God. And so in inscriptions of Caesar Augustus all through the Roman Empire, which included Palestine and Israel of that day, were not just notations of the emperor Caesar Augustus, but that he was the son of God. But in Jesus, we have the son of, as Peter would say, the living God. Or son of, here Luke says, or Gabriel says, the most high God. We have a tendency, just like the first century world, to put our hope and our trust in would-be sons of God, self-proclaimed sons of God, Caesar Augustus things, politicians, 401ks, college degrees, houses and material possessions, social status, family lineages, bank accounts, intelligence, elections, global ideals. Can I tell you something? Many of those things can be good, but none of them are ultimate. And when we place our hope in them, it might give us temporary tastes of happiness. But they are Caesar Augustus's. There would be sons of God. Jesus is the only son of the living God. Son of the Most High. The true and the ultimate son of God. Who reveals to us exactly what God is like. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, he, that is speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. This Advent, it is time once again for us to examine our lives, to find the would-be sons of God that we have wrongly placed our hopes in, and to once again Hear the announcement about who Jesus is from the angel Gabriel and allow our hearts to renew their hope in Jesus.
God made flesh for the forgiveness of the world. In Jesus, God has broken in and he dwells among us. Can I pray with you?